Good morning, church. I hope I don't sound like a broken record. My kids make fun of me because every Sunday I say the same thing and they tease me and they mock me and they imitate me saying, I love you, church, I love you, but I do. (laughs) I love you and I appreciate you and I'm so thankful for our relationship, our relationship to the Lord and our relationship to each other. We don't know how long this storm that we're going through will last, but I do know that what we will remember, what you will remember and what everyone else will remember is how we treated one another during this time, how we loved and supported one another during this time. So let's make sure that we continue to do that, to love each other and to support each other. Uh, I was thinking this week about when I proposed to Holly, and when I asked her to marry me, I I was a little nervous, I'll admit, I was a little nervous, but I wasn't really nervous because I already knew, I I don't say that arrogantly, I I knew what she was going to say because we had talked about it. We had talked about getting engaged. I mean, my biggest question was whether or not she would like the ring, right? I mean, so I knew she was going to say yes to the question. Now, what her dad was going to say when I asked his permission, that was a, a different subject, right? Worry... Worry happens when we're not sure that something will work out well, right? When we're, when we're uncertain about the way things are going to go, specifically when we're uncertain about whether or not things are going to turn out the way we want them to turn out, when we're uncertain that things are going to be, be good in the end. I heard a story this week, and you may listen to this story and think, I can't imagine anybody wanting to do that, but there was a guy, and he talked about how he loved to record sporting events. So whatever the sporting event was, he loved to record it and then watch it later. So he'd get home, and he'd he'd find the recording of his sporting event, and he would fast forward it all the way to the end to see whether or not his team won. Now, if his team lost, he'd just delete the recording, and that was it. I'm done. I don't want to watch it because I know it's going to happen. But if his team won, he'd he'd rewind it all the way back to the beginning. He'd go get some snacks, and he'd sit down, and he'd enjoy the game from the beginning. And some people would listen to that, I'm sure, and think, that's crazy. Why would you do that? But I think you appreciate what he said. He says, it's more enjoyable that way, because no matter how bad things look for my team, and here's the part I want you to hear, I don't have to worry because I know the end of the story. And I thought, that's good, because that's how we ought to be. I don't have to worry because I already know the end of the story. When you know how things are going to work out, when you know there's going to be a happy ending, you don't have to worry because no matter how bad it looks for your team in the moment, because in the moment as you're watching through the game, you think, man, if I didn't know how this story was going to end, I might be worried. But I don't have to worry because I know how the story is going to end. Now here, spoiler alert, for Christians, we know how the story is going to end. Amen? We know God wins. We know more than that, his people win. The the end has already been sealed. We know how the story ends. And so as we think about this 30 days of thanks, as we think about what do we have to be thankful for, we can thank God not only for the, 
the good things he has done, but for the good things we know he will do. We can thank God not only for the good things in the past, but for the good things in the future because we know how the story is going to end. Don't we? And that's a a question I'm I'm not just asking rhetorically. Don't we know? Do do we know? Do we know how the story is going to end? Because if I'm real honest... There's been some times when, when I've looked at my own life and the way that I'm acting and the things that I'm saying and there's things that I've seen and heard other brothers and sisters in Christ say and do and I, I want to just stop and say, wait a second, what are we so worried about? Don't we know how the story's going to end? I mean, when there's something like an election... We might not know how the election's going to turn out. We may not know how this particular thing right now today is going to turn out. But we know the big picture. We know how things are going to turn out. And that ought to affect the way we live our lives. We ought to be able to live with love. And we ought to be able to live with joy. And we ought to be able to live with confidence. Because we know how the story will turn out. I think that that there are two things that go hand in hand, and it's praise and peace, right? Praise and peace go hand in hand, and the more we praise, the more we thank, the more gratitude we have, the more peace we can have, and conversely, that's true as well, that when we're lacking peace, a lot of times it's because we're lacking praise, And we fail to have peace because we fail to praise. We fail to have confidence because we fail to have gratitude. And that when our hearts are filled with gratitude and praise and thanksgiving, then we can have confidence about the future and we can have peace. Even in the moment, even in the midst of the storm. And it's like we talked about last week. It doesn't mean that we don't acknowledge the dangers and the difficulties of the storm or the present moment. I I mean, if you're watching through your game film and you know how the story ends, even if in the moment somebody gets hurt or in the moment things look bad, you can acknowledge this is bad. It is objectively bad. It's painful. It's difficult but I still know how the story is going to end. And church, that's the way we have to be able to live every single day of our lives. And our our psalm today comes from Psalm 92, and I want to look first at the introduction of the psalm. Most of the time, we don't spend a lot of time on just the introduction, but you'll see there, and even in in Hebrew, it, it gives us this introduction, the beginning of Psalm 92, and it's the only one that has this particular introduction, a song for the Sabbath. Now, last week, I, I kind of jokingly called last week's psalm a psalm for the storm because it's a psalm that you can sing even in the midst of a storm. But this week's title or introduction is a psalm for the Sabbath. We spent a couple weeks ago talking about Sabbath, talking about rest. And every week for the Jewish people, the Sabbath day was a day for rest. But, but not just rest, a day of, of trust. And a day of anticipation, a day of almost pretending, I hate to use that word, but but almost pretending this is the age to come. Because they anticipated there's going to come a day when God does away with all evil, when God's Messiah reigns, when God brings peace and salvation to his people. And they would spend every Saturday, every Sabbath day, 
resting in that truth as if that age had already come. So as the end of the age, every week at the end of the week, they would spend the end of the week resting in the age that was to come, pretending this is, this is like the age. And when the age comes, when the Messiah reigns, when salvation comes, this is what it will be like. Peace and rest. And we're not going to worry and we're not going to work and we're not going to fight and we're not going to struggle and we're not going to toil. We're just going to rest in what God has done and what God will do. And so every Sabbath day was a day to both rest in what God had done, what God was doing, but also anticipate what God would do. So listen to this psalm with that in mind. Chapter, or sorry, Psalm 92 and verse 1. He says, it is good to give thanks to the Lord, to sing praises to your name, O Most High, to declare your steadfast love in the morning and your faithfulness by night. It is good. I love that phrase. It is good to give thanks. It is good to give thanks. Let's just kind of sit with that thought for a second. It is good to give thanks. Why is it good? Well, we talked last week. It's good for you to give thanks, right? It's good for you to give thanks. It's good for me to give thanks. But it's also good for other people to hear us give thanks. It's good for the world to hear God's people give thanks. It is good for the world to hear God's people have gratitude. It is good for the world to hear God's people praise him. It is good to give thanks. It is good for you to give thanks. It is good for others to hear you give, give thanks. But it's also good in the sense that it's, it's fitting. It's appropriate. It's always appropriate to give thanks. It is always fitting to give thanks. There's always something for which we can give thanks, isn't there? But, but, but it's also good in the sense of being the opposite of what? What's the opposite of good? Bad, right? It, it would be bad not to give thanks, right? It would be bad to fail to give thanks. It would be bad to fail to have gratitude. Not only is it a good thing to give thanks, it's a bad thing not to give thanks. For God to do all of these great and wonderful things for us and for us to say nothing. Or for us to be like, you remember when Israel was coming out of captivity, coming out of Egypt, and they, they complained, and they complained, and they complained, and sometimes we look back at them and we wag our finger, those, those groaning, complaining Israelites, and it's like, we, we do the same thing, don't we? It is bad for us to receive so many great and wonderful things from God and have nothing good to say about them. It is good to give thanks. It is good to praise. It is good to declare, to declare your steadfast love in the morning and your faithfulness by night, right? That's all the time, right? In the morning and at night, all the time, it is good to declare your steadfast love and your faithfulness. Then he says in verse three, to the music of the lute and the harp, to the melody of the lyre, for you, O Lord, have made me glad by your work. At the works of your hands, I sing for joy. You've made me glad by your work and the works of your hands. So your work is all encompassing, right? It's everything that you've done. And it's good for us. It is good to give thanks. It is good for us 
to recognize the full body of what God has done. His full, all-encompassing work, singular, everything you've done, Father, it is good to give thanks. It makes me glad. It gives me joy. But also the works, plural, of your hands, the enumerated, one by one, all of the wonderful, amazing, spectacular, terrific things that you've done, one by one. Verse 5, how great are your works, O Lord. Your thoughts are very deep. The, I won't read what it says because some of you moms and dads won't like that very much, but some translations say senseless. The senseless man cannot know, the fool cannot understand this, that though the wicked sprout like grass and all evildoers flourish, they are doomed to destruction forever. Great are your works, And this is what I want us to get throughout this entire series, that gratitude for the past gives confidence or courage for the future, right? Because your works are great, because you've done so many amazing, wonderful things in the past, I know, I know what's going to happen in the future. I'm not like 90% sure or 50% sure. I'm confident. I know what's going to happen in the future. I know how the story ends. I know where this is headed. I know where this is going. Why? Because of what you've done in the past. Because your works are great. And he says only the fool, only the senseless person, only the empty-headed person doesn't know where wickedness ends up. Right? Only the foolish person doesn't understand the fate of the wicked. Only the fool doesn't understand what's going to happen to the wicked. Now on the surface, right, we've talked about this so many times. There are so many times where the wicked flourish, where evil flourishes, and you think, God, this is so broken. This is so messed up. This is so disastrous. How could this ever work out? How could this, how could things ever be set right? And the psalmist reminds us, only the fool doesn't know that God's going to work everything out. Only the fool thinks that the way things are are the way things will always be. The wise person recognizes it won't always be like this. I know it hurts right now. I know it's bad right now. I know it's difficult right now. But the wise person recognizes this won't always be the way it is. The wicked, the evil will be brought down. They are doomed to destruction. So we ask ourselves, things about God's work. Do do you believe that after hundreds of years in slavery, God brought Israel out? Do you believe that? That God brought the the mighty nation of, of Egypt to its knees and brought his people out of slavery? Do we believe that he parted the Red Sea so that his people could pass? Do we believe that God gave them the fortified cities of Canaan? Do you believe that God helped David to slay Goliath? Do you believe that all of the things that God has done to bring down empires like Assyria, Babylon, Persia, Greece, and Rome, and brought them all down, do you believe that God raised Jesus from the dead? Do we believe that God has done these great things? If the answer is yes, then that ought to give us confidence about the future. 
We know what's going to happen with the wicked. We know what's going to happen with the evil. We know what's going to happen when people hurt and oppress and do wicked and evil things. We know what's going to happen to them. We don't have to fret over the evildoer because only the fool doesn't understand the fate of the wicked that God will deal with all evil in the world. That's exactly what the psalmist is saying, that evildoers flourish now, but their time is coming. They are doomed. They are doomed to destruction. They are destined for destruction. Now, now, hear this. God may not deal with evil on your timetable, but he will deal with it. And that's the part we don't like sometimes, isn't it? We, We want God to deal with evil on our timetable. We want God to make things right on our timetable. And that may not be the case. But he will deal with it. And the fact that he will deal with it ought to fill us with an incredible amount of gratitude. I don't know what's going to happen in the next week. I don't know what's going to happen in the next month. I don't know what's going to happen in the next year. But I do know what's going to happen big picture. I do know how the story ends. And I know that you and I are going to live forever with each other and with the Lord. Praise God. We can't lose. We've already won. And do you see how this psalm is a great psalm for the Sabbath? To just rest in this truth that even though the wicked flourish like the grass, they are doomed to destruction. Verse 8 But you, O Lord, are on high forever. For behold, your enemies, O Lord, for behold, your enemies shall perish. All evildoers shall be scattered. It's gratitude. It's gratitude. It's thanksgiving that gives us this courage, that gives us this confidence, that gives us this conviction. We know these things are true. We know the evil will be scattered. We know that they will be brought down because we are so grateful and we live in and dwell on all of God's mighty works of the past. And because of our gratitude for the past, we have courage and conviction for the future. And we know how things are going to end. Why? Because we know that when you play king of the hill with God, you lose, right? You remember that game when you were a kid, King of the Hill, there'd be a big dirt pile and the strongest kid could stay up on top and you'd challenge him and you'd get pushed off and you'd see who's the strongest could stay on top of the hill. And that's what the psalmist is saying that evil people are doing. They're playing King of the Hill with God and there's no contest. We know how this is going to end. So of course we don't partner with wicked or evil or wickedness, but we also don't fret over wickedness and evil. Because we know how it ends. And so on the Sabbath day, they could rest in this truth, in this confidence, thanking God for what he's done in the past and having courage and conviction and confidence about what God would do in the future. So he says in verse 10, even more so, but you have exalted my horn. A horn is a symbol for power or authority. You've exalted my horn like that of the wild ox. You have poured over me fresh oil refreshing and renewing my eyes have seen the downfall of my enemies my ears have heard the doom of my evil assailants now notice he says my eyes have seen these things my ears have heard these things so on the sabbath day they could look forward by faith and see these things 
Even though their eyes may not have beheld the fall of their enemies in real time, by faith they could look forward to the future and the psalmist could say, my eyes have already seen it, my ears have already heard it, so I can rest in this truth that you have already exalted my horn, you've already poured fresh oil on me, you've already brought my enemies down, I've already won, I'm already victorious, so the Sabbath day is a day to rest and to anticipate what God will do. But I want us to recognize something as Christians, that for us, we live in a perpetual Sabbath day because Jesus has already accomplished these things. So, so there is, there's an aspect to it that we are still looking forward to the future and saying, God will exalt my horn. God will pour fresh oil over me. God will bring my enemies down. But there's also an aspect in which that's already true. In Jesus, we have already claimed victory. Jesus has already been raised from the dead. It isn't as if Jesus is still in the tomb waiting to be raised. He's been raised from the dead. Victory has already been claimed. And so for us, every day is this Sabbath rest where we can say, I don't, I don't have to fight as people fought before. I don't have to work like people worked before. I don't have to toil like people toiled before. I don't have to wonder like people wondered before. Now, more than anyone has ever had, I can have confidence. If David or if the psalmist or if the people of old could have had confidence, I can have more because Jesus has already been raised from the dead. Look at verse 12. He says, and again, looking forward to this future time in which, in a sense, we already live. He says, the righteous flourish. Do you remember earlier he said, who flourished? The, the wicked flourish, right? But in, in, in the Sabbath rest, we can look forward to the day when the righteous flourish. And as a Christian, in Christ, that's already true. The righteous flourish like the palm tree and grow like a cedar in Lebanon. They are planted in the house of the Lord. They flourish in the courts of our God. They still bear fruit in old age. They are ever full of sap and green to declare that the Lord is upright. He is my rock and there is no unrighteousness in him. So we know the destiny of the wicked and we also know the destiny of the righteous. And here it's like this metaphor of a garden and who are the plants of the garden? God's people, the righteous ones. And he says that they're, they're bearing fruit in old age. They are ever full of sap and green. What's a, a tree that is always full of sap and green, always bearing fruit? It lives forever. Where? In the courts of the Lord, in, in the house of God. And he says, this is the destiny of the righteous. And on the Sabbath day, they could rest and sing this song. We know, we know the destiny of the wicked and we know the destiny of the righteous. That our destiny is to live forever in the courts of God, to live forever in the house of God. And church, what we have to recognize is, yes, this is still a future hope for us because we're still dealing with pain and death and evil and wickedness. But it's more than just a future hope. In Christ, it's already a present reality. Look at Ephesians chapter two. I don't usually skip around much, but I wanna 
close out with Ephesians 2, verses 4 through 7. See how Paul talks about our future hope already being a present reality. He says, but God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Now that's a good sentence, huh? That's a good promise. And not just a promise, but a present reality. Do you see? He says that he Christ. He has already raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. He doesn't say he will do these things. It says he has done these things, that this is already a present reality for us. That there's a sense in which you're already seated at the table with Jesus. In the midst of the storm, in the midst of the struggle, in the midst of the heartbreak, in the midst of sin and death, you are already seated with Christ in the heavenly places. You are already a plant, a tree growing in the courts of God, ever green and full of sap, bearing fruit in your old age, living forever with him. That's already a present reality and it's a future hope. He says, so that in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us, in Christ Jesus. So church, if, if anybody, if anybody ever had a right to have confidence, it's you. If you're a follower of Jesus, if anybody ever had a right to confidence, it's us. Because we can say, not only looking back and say, you know what? God brought his people out of Egypt and took them through the Red Sea. Not only can we look back and say David brought down the giant of Goliath or, or the, the cities of Canaan were conquered or God brought down the wicked empires of Assyria and Babylon and Rome. We can look back and we can see all of these things, but more than all of those things, he brought Jesus to life and you are in Christ, which means he has already won a victory on your behalf. And so we thank God and praise God and have gratitude just pouring from us because of all of the things that God through Jesus has done. And, and it means embracing the truth that we know how the story ends. There is no doubt. There is no wonder. There is no other possibility. There is no possibility of evil winning. There is no possibility of darkness overcoming. The victory has already been decided. It's already been sealed. I don't know what's going to happen in the short term, but I know what's going to happen in the long term, and that is we win. So we have to live with that confidence. Here's where I want us to end today. There is a direct correlation between our gratitude and our confidence. There is a direct correlation between our gratitude and our confidence. Our gratitude for what God has done. And again, if the psalmist could have confidence in what God had done and what God would do, if he could have gratitude for the works of God's hands, 
then you can have more. You can have more gratitude for the works of God's hands because you've seen the risen Christ. You are living in the age of the Messiah's reign. Right now, you are living in the age of the Messiah's reign. So as much gratitude as David or any other psalmist could have, you can have more. And there is a direct correlation between gratitude and confidence. Your gratitude for what God has done brings confidence about what God will do. And we don't have to wonder what God will do. We don't have to wonder how the story ends because our future hope is already a present reality in Christ. But sometimes we lose sight of that, don't we? Sometimes we lose our confidence and we start to wonder, what if this happens? What if that happens? What if this thing comes to pass? What if that thing comes to pass? And our confidence starts to shake and we start to wonder and we start to be afraid. What do we do when we start to fear? What do we do when we start to lose confidence? Praise God. Thank God. Have gratitude for what God has done. Remember what he has done. Praise him for what he has done. And as you praise him and as you thank him and as you remember his great and mighty works, I guarantee your confidence will be increased. When we are baptized into Jesus, we are embracing this reality. When we say, I believe Jesus Christ is the Son of God, we are saying, I believe that he is the Messiah and he has already begun to reign and I embrace that new reality and that future hope that is already a present reality. And not only do I want my sins washed away, but I want to have this confidence. If you've been baptized into Jesus... Remember the confidence that you have because of that reality. And if you've not, then what are you waiting for? The world is tumultuous. The world is up and down. The world's mood and the world's worry goes up and down every single day. And one day it's this and the next day it's that. But in Jesus, we can be steadfast. We can be rock solid not because of our confidence in self, but our confidence in him. So what are you waiting for? Put your faith in him. And if you have, then let's remind ourselves to be grateful and let's live as people who have this confidence because of this gratitude. Church, if there's anything we can do for you this morning, if we can pray for you or encourage you, if you're ready to put Jesus on in baptism, we're going to sing a song. And as we do, one of our shepherds will be back at the information desk and you are more than welcome to meet with them at this time. Let's stand and sing.